Well, hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast for security professionals to help you learn skills, techniques, and knowledge that'll help you get ahead in your cybersecurity career. This is G. Mark Hardy, and I'm pleased to be with you this time to talk to you about an application security program and basically setting up an AppSec program. This is an opportunity for you to exercise your leadership skills and influence skills because, let's face it, as a CISO or a security executive, the people who are doing the application development probably don't work for you. And as a result, through a series of skills, influence, knowledge, capabilities, and of course, having an action plan, you're going to be more successful in this. And so let's go ahead and take a listen to a good approach for how to do so after this word from our sponsor. If your team is starting to use infrastructure as code languages like Terraform, and you want to automate security, take a look at CloudRail. It's GitOps friendly and integrates with all your native CI tools. And you can onboard your cloud account to get visibility into configuration drifts between your infrastructure as code and your live infrastructure. Try CloudRail out for free at indeni.com slash CISO Tradecraft. That's I-N-D-E-N-I.com. When it comes to setting up an application security program, I guess the first question to really ask is, is your organization creating software or tools for others or even for internal use? Um, if so, then there is a good need to make sure that we build security into our application development process. Those who are doing this work typically don't report to the chief information security officer. They're often done in another department within the organization. And as a result, you're going to need influence strategies to be able to help them out. Now, our goal, of course, is to what? reduce the likelihood of a breach or a violation or disclosure or something that could be due to an error or an oversight. If you take a look at the NIST website, they have a, a study there. I can check up the references on it. But they looked at the differences between application developers that had both bugs that were set up in terms of errors for the coding and then design errors. That is to say, it wasn't really built correctly. And it turned out that that was about a 50-50 mix, which at first surprised me. I thought, well, hey, gee whiz, isn't it going to be a lot more bugs? But when I realized it, and I think back on some of my development days, there's stuff that you don't always think about in the development. And as a result, the programmers are going to program it well, exactly as you say to, in correct configurations and all. Therefore, what we want to think about is how do we make sure that we drive down those potential problems with regard to design. When it comes to actual programming and people making either a bug or a program or a fat finger mistake, I know that's kind of out of scope, but really what we're looking for is to be able to go ahead and get ahead of the problem. Uh, we don't want to wait until some audit comes in and reveals that we've got some problems or worse yet, there's an incident. By being proactive, we're able to better introduce security into our process and less likely to then have problems in our application development shop. Now, why would we want to set up such a program? Um, again, as a CISO, you need to understand this is part of your domain. Application security rightly belongs to the CISO. Now, again, as I said before, one of the difficulties is, is that the people who are doing the work aren't reporting directly to you. And therefore, we want to think about, well, how do we go about doing this? What's required? What needs to get done, and how do we know when things are well good enough? 
one of the difficulties that a lot of organizations face from a political perspective, or as I like to say, layer eight, is a stovepiping of information. That is to say, an unwillingness to share, an unwillingness to go ahead and make information available to other groups' areas because there's, well, not a need to know. And reality is, is that in a lot of cases, there's probably a need to share. And we avoid the symptom of the quote-unquote stovepipes of excellence, where we're basically rejoicing in the fact that we're keeping information away from others in the organization. What we want to be able to do then is for our AppSec program to effectively manage the security of the application systems and protect our information from unauthorized access, use, disclosure, disruption, modification, destruction. And if we do that, we get to the basic security 101, the integrity, the confidentiality, and availability of our systems. Well, when we look at issues with respect to our applications, one of the problems, of course, is unauthorized access. We can do something about unauthorized access by enforcing, well, least privilege. Now, note that least privilege isn't a stovepipe. What least privilege is is an adjustment of the access rights that an individual has relative to what their job description is. The average programmer doesn't need root permissions on the servers, doesn't need to be a domain administrator or the like to be able to get the job done, but does need to have sufficient rights to get the work done. But another thing we want to make sure then is if we avoid this problem of excessive privilege, you then avoid the problem of potential disclosures or even unauthorized modification. I've been in a lot of organizations where you find out that when rights are granted to individuals, they tend to stick around. As an emergency comes up, you get special access to something, and then the sysadmin or whomever it was that created that special access, who was in a hurry herself, never wrote down the fact that this was an exception. And unless you're doing internal audits and you're doing tools to check for that, it just ends up persisting there. Now, one interesting approach I'd heard is organization, and it's a little bit out of scope for AppSec, but something to think about as a CISO, is that when people take vacations or the like, work with HR and say, hey, someone's going to take a vacation. Now's a good time to probably go ahead and review their rights and privileges. So when they come back to work, they've got things right-sized. In a financial institution, I've seen it go as far as zero-basing everything. That might be a little bit too much based on the size of your organization. But when you think about anybody, whether you're just developers or the like, making sure that we have that right amount of privilege is important. We want to build in checks at the time of software development. That creates a form of resilience. What we want to ensure then is that as we go through our software development cycles that we're not going ahead and introducing any unnecessary risk by failing to go ahead and check for things. Now, how do you know when you're done? Well, to do so, we need to have a set of metrics. And it would be really nice to be able to demonstrate an acceptable level of risk. We do so by establishing certain key performance indicators in which we can be measured and which we will measure our success. Um, first one, number of vulnerabilities present in an application. Well, of course, vulnerabilities are only present to the extent that we're aware they're present. That is to say, an undetected vulnerability represents a potential future problem. And so what we want to do is do the best we can to reduce that by effective checks and effective tool sets. And we'll talk about that. Um, number two would be the time to fix the vulnerabilities. How long between when a problem is identified and a problem is patched? A third one would then be the remediation rate of vulnerabilities. How are we doing? 
are these things piling in faster than we can fix them? And as a result, we're facing a losing battle, or are we finding out that we're quite effective in making sure that these things get taken care of? And then of course, the time the vulnerabilities are remaining open, a little bit different than the time to fix in that time to fix is you're aware of it, and then the process is gonna go through when you start working on it. Um, time the vulns are open suggests that from the time of detection to the time of repair, or the start of repair, I guess. and of course, there's always a concern of how well are we doing? And so we can look ultimately at our defect density. What's our vulnerability rate per application, per set of tools, so that we can do a little bit of diagnostic information to determine if certain developers are more successful or perhaps less successful in implementing the best tools and techniques to go ahead and drive down some of these problems. The goal is we have to align with the risk tolerance of the organization. Now, if you define what you want up front, it's a lot easier to pave a path to completion. And so what we want to do then is track our metrics over time with goals, and that's going to become our key performance indicators, and we'll use that with management to focus our results. How do you get started? Where do you begin? It turns out that White Hat Security has a great document called Five Days of Setting Up an AppSec Program. And I'd like to go ahead and reference that. Uh, we'll give a link there in the show notes. But, you know, though going through it, it looked pretty comprehensive. I think it's extremely ambitious to think you can actually get through this thing in five days. Nonetheless, it does provide an awful lot of information that's going to be helpful for us. So let's take a look and see what White Hat has to say about how do we get started. To begin our program, the first thing we want to really do is to dedicate some time to understanding the lay of the land and, and the key players. Learn what their objectives are and their motivations. Um, ideally, spend some time with the parts of the organization you may not be the most familiar with. And ensure that you've got some form of security mandate as defined by management or the organization. And then think about how IT officer is going to align with that security mandate. Now, be alert that you might have some initial thoughts or ideas or what we might even call biases. So focus on gaining understanding. And, and the best way to gain understanding is to, well, start with key questions. So if you're talking to management, probably one of the best things to ask about. And again, this is assuming maybe perhaps you're new in this role, but if you've been around for a while, you might already have these answers. Has the organization defined an internal security mandate? Well, if not, then you find out that that may devolve onto you. But the point is, is that there should be executive attention to the fact that we need to go ahead and enforce security internally. The next question to look at is then what's the current and planned resources, both human and financial, dedicated to application security? Is this a funded program? Are there people dedicated to do it or even partially dedicated to do that? Or is this something that's going to quote unquote come out of hide? Um, the last then becomes a little bit more difficult to go ahead and do something with, but at least you know what you're working with. And then what are the IT and the organization's priorities? Security doesn't always fit up there until something horribly goes wrong, at which point suddenly there's a half-life of awareness that says, hey, this is an issue. We need to do something about it. If you do not take action during that awareness period, what's going to happen is it's going to decay and something else is going to come up and replace that level of awareness. And then people are going to stop caring about it. So you want to go ahead and 
get some leverage, if you will, any time that an opportunity occurs. Now, of course, in perfect world, you wouldn't have any uh, problems, but yeah, you kind of face reality. We're not playing for perfect scores. It doesn't work out here. When we look at the next set of questions, perhaps on security, what's the overall security budget and priorities of that budget? And then if we look at our security budget, let's ask a key question. How much is that is allocated to application security? All right. There may be plenty for internal IT infrastructure security, but as AppSec, what we're really talking about is the applications that we're building, possibly even as a product for our customers or for internal consumption. Do we have any way to tell which of our assets are attacked most frequently? Are we able to see what our targets are? And as a result, it's more than likely that those are going to be the ones that have to be secured the most, hardened the most, because they're going to be subject to the most attack. And then what security tools or services do we as an organization currently own or use? Perhaps then determine, are there any gaps in coverage that you might want to take a look at? When you're talking to IT operations, some key questions are, well, what are your assets? And what is it the ones that we own? And what are the ones that might be hosted or owned by third parties? Uh, web assets, how are these isolated and distributed throughout the infrastructure? And how frequently are vulnerability scans performed, both across the network and the server? And this is kind of the gestalt of what's our tolerance around product and production safety, that things have to be done correctly, or is there always a requirement to get things out the door? I can remember times where I was working with a small company and as a developer had a marketing guy come in the bank and said, hey, can you guys have such and such a feature by Friday? He's actually a sales guy. And we're like, well, it's actually down on the list of priorities. We'll get to it. And he said, if you can get it by Friday, we'll make payroll this week. Okay, I guess that's going to become the most important one. Well, in a situation like that, we got a rush to market. We got the feature in there. We shipped out, got the payroll covered because the customer had paid right away. But it kind of brings up the dynamics of we don't exist in a vacuum to be able to go ahead and pump things out. It has to go ahead and meet with the organization's requirements. If you're talking to your engineering group, if you look at talking to the software development groups, What's their understanding of the current process? And do they have any delegation responsible for application security? Again, you can have people that are responsible for doing the work, but ultimately accountability for security often tends to land on our shoulders. And as a result, we got to make sure that we're not trying to flick that accountability around, although it's nice to know that someone's going to do the work. At the same time, you can't, as a CISO, if something crashes and burns, go point across the other side and say, well, it's their fault. They screwed it up. Don't blame me. That's not really how leadership works. How does security then fit into the software development lifecycle? Are we doing business analysis and are we considering the, the stakeholders that uh, can detail what their needs are and what their risk tolerance is? Uh, do we do threat modeling, help to figure out where the potential agents may be? Uh, if we do a security architecture review, we might find out that there's some flaws in areas like authentication, access control, uh, separation of concerns, and of course, maybe identifying missing security controls in general. From the implementation process, normally consists of coding and development from the architectural design from the previous phase, well, the developers should be getting feedback continuously to make sure that their security issues are being identified, they're mitigated in conformance with what the organization's risk tolerance might be. And then testing should include security tests, as well as well, functional tests. If you look at areas of concentration we want to do for testing, 
look at vulnerabilities that might not have been uncovered during the implementation phase, such as, well, maybe business logic vulnerabilities. And then from a maintenance perspective, once the application's promoted up to production, continually test that. Look for security issues throughout the life of the application. As potential vectors evolve or new vulnerabilities and potential attacks come along, we want to ensure that we test to ensure that we can defend against them. And then kind of to wrap things up, how are our software defects documented, trended, prioritized? Is there a Jira for that? What are we, where are we putting all this? Are developers encouraged to develop secure code? Is there training? Is there rewards for it? Is this part of their compensation plan? How about abuse and misuse cases, part of test scripts? We always got use cases, but how about abuse cases? I remember years ago when I worked as a contractor, we were writing huge program for the federal government. And when we wrote the test plan, of course, we just put in their use cases. They say, if you do this, then that should happen. If you do this at the time, and this is many years ago, we really weren't thinking about, well, could you break it? Well, we wrote it. We didn't expect to try to break it. And quite honestly, I guess if we were thinking about it when we were writing it, we probably would have put those guardrails in. So you got to be careful then that sometimes it's not the, um, I don't know, it's more the hen guarding the hen house in a way, not the fox, is that if you write your own stuff and you write your own testing, you probably might be overlooking. So fortunately, there's a lot of tool sets that out there that might help out. And is everyone in the organization expected to have general software security knowledge? Or is there somebody who's in charge of being uh, that from a security deputy? Now, sound like a lot of stuff. And again, from the White House hat paper, that's day one. I could see that as maybe being the first couple of weeks maybe a little bit longer. But essentially, by going ahead and having a program where you're getting to talk to people, understanding the lay of the land, know what tool sets are out there, what are the processes and procedures, how do we go ahead and utilize these tools to ensure a more secure development cycle, where I think we're far better and farther ahead than we would have been if we just kind of jumped in and said, okay, fine, we're here from security, what can we do to help? The second phase would then to be Come intimately familiar with what you have to protect and at what level. What are your processes, your procedures? And develop some checklists to align these assessment strategies to your business needs and effectively communicate these goals of the AppSec assessment program to the people who are going to have to implement it, as well as, of course, back to management to let them know what they're going to be reported and why it makes a sense. Have a single point of contact for the program so that ideas, feedback, et cetera, don't get lost. If we look at asset discovery, well, it's pretty straightforward to gather all the internal IP address ranges, uh, external ones if we're working with them, maybe stuff up in the cloud. What are our domains? What are our subdomains? Uh, where, you know, what are our site owners? What do we have that's not already known? How about credentials, including roles for horizontal testing or vertical testing? And Figure out the rate of application change. Are we going out there doing a pure DevOps or these things may be changing on a daily or weekly basis? Or is it more of a measured uh, approach where we're doing perhaps the good old waterfall where, okay, here we go. Here's our giant change and it comes out every few months. Let's look at prioritizing our asset risk based on confidentiality, integrity, availability to figure out, you know, is it low, medium, high? Um, map our asset criticality against our compliance requirements. What is it that we need to be doing? And establish then a communication plan. Make sure we set expectations of our program for all the interested parties and let ops teams know about upcoming activities and gather buy-ins from stakeholders and 
develop and publish and maintain comprehensive AppSec and privacy standards, policies and procedures, standards and guidelines, yeah, the good old paperwork, and to find, document, and share our business continuity and incident response plan. That gives us plenty to do. And then at that point, we can focus on measuring some current vulnerability posture, our testing, and then perhaps triage our vulnerabilities. Uh, there's ways we could do so by looking at assessments across our assets and doing a static analysis. The static analysis is looking at the code in the test, in the uh, production phase, where we're actually writing the code before it's moved on to testing so we could potentially identify some problems. Static application security testing, looking for things like embedded passwords, syntax errors, things such as that. As we move on to the testing phase, dynamic application security testing, how to help out. We can actively go ahead and fuzz our apps with bad data, see if we can cause some failure or unexpected outcomes. Vulnerability scanners are always useful to go ahead and, and kind of rattle the cages, so to speak. Uh, we can look at secret scanning and even cloud security scanning to see what's out there. We can then move on to some key activities by measuring and improving our assessment service delivery. And again, our metrics that we talked about before, what's the number of vulnerabilities? What's the total count that we have? And it's valuable as a metric over time to see, are we doing better at producing fewer of them? Uh, the time open since the time the vulnerability was open as of a date and uh, only open vulnerabilities. We, we calculate that for uh, those until they're closed out. So we get a feel for any given time. Where are we looking at in terms of our risk posture? Our time to fix is, well, the number of partial days required to close a vulnerability. And it says that during this analysis period, how many got closed out, and then we can track that. Our remediation rate looks at the number closed over the total vulnerabilities open. If we are closing 50, 80, 99% of our vulnerabilities, that's going to be, depending upon what your metrics are, how you're going to report that. And then if we're looking at the percentage of applications that might have at least one open vulnerability in a given vulnerability class, we might want to keep track of that. And as a result, we're able to see, are we doing minor or major issues here? Finally, with regard to key activities, have some compensating controls and some mitigation controls. One of the difficulties in being able to, or having to rush something to market in terms of applications is it means that we might not have fully completed our testing. As a result, what would be a, a good compensating control for that? Do you run it at a lower privilege level? Uh, do you go ahead and isolate the application so it doesn't have access to other resources that there might be some problem if somebody got in there that it could cause some compromise or lateral movement if it got popped? And um, then think about prioritizing our remediation. The compensating controls, maybe we use web app firewalls, for example. We'll, we'll inspect all the traffic coming to the web app to make sure that the common attacks, well, aren't being run. And we could probably use mitigating controls to discover and prevent mistakes that might lead to vulnerability introduction. Okay, so application software security controls and build security into the development lifecycle and have some prioritization for remediation. It doesn't really require commitments from all elements of the business to do so, but it's important to have a clear understanding of what resources need to be protected and what type of risk is going to be acceptable. But given this information, it may not be that difficult or complex to be able to do so. Next, I want to introduce to you Microsoft's security development lifecycle practice. 
I also have a link for that in the podcast notes, but Microsoft provides a number of best practices that are similar to what we heard about White Hat, but these are more prescriptive with respect to how do we go ahead and set up the program rather than for us interacting with others. So let's take a look and see what we have here. The first practice is, of course, probably makes sense, provide training. Make sure people know what their job is, what their requirements are. Security is everyone's job, but not everybody has to do the same security. That is to say, we're not trying to make everybody a security expert, nor are we going to go ahead and try to make everybody a pen tester, for example. Nonetheless, if everybody understands what the attacker's perspective is and the goals and really kind of what's possible, maybe we can get people's attention and we're more likely to raise our collective bar of knowledge. The second practice is to define security requirements. We've been talking a little bit about that previously. Obviously, you know, the best time to define security requirements is during the initial design and planning stages. And that way, it's just a matter of backing up and erasing or deleting, or for those of us who are old school, breaking out that pencil eraser and changing what we wrote. Nonetheless, the point is, is that security requirements, the sooner they're known, the better they are likely to reduce our risk and not require us to have to redo things. The third practice is to define metrics and compliance reporting. Now, we referred to that before, and we talked about key performance indicators, and these are really ways that we can hold our engineering teams accountable to meeting minimum acceptable levels of security. If we have a, a bug bar that says, for example, here's a threshold of being able to determine how well the coding is going. If we've got vulnerabilities that are critical or important and they have to get fixed within a certain period of time, let's hold everybody to that standard. Uh, that metrics and compliance, if you know, essentially they say what you inspect, you can expect. And therefore, by communicating that to our folks, they know what to do. If we're looking at, for example, uh, a DevOps environment, we want to make sure that security defects and work items are clearly labeled as security. And, and therefore, with some severity labels attached, it calls people's attention to the fact that we're going to be looking at that and paying attention. Another practice is to perform threat modeling. Use those in environments where there may be a meaningful security risk. And we can do this threat modeling at pretty much any level, the component level, application, or even the system level. But we want to ensure that our dev teams think about the security implementations of designs in the context of the planned operational environment. If we know what the threats are and the threat scenarios, and we can come up with a structured approach, we can help our team better identify where their potential security vulnerabilities might be, what the risks are from the threats, and then select the appropriate security features and mitigations to ensure that we drive down that risk. A practice of establishing design requirements. The software development or security development lifecycle, really, is typically thought of as assurance activities that will help us implement secure features. And to do so, our engineers rely on tools like cryptography, authentication, logging, and getting the right features sometimes is very, very complicated. And complexity is, well, the enemy of security. I think that's a Bruce Schneier quote. And therefore, it's really important that we apply these consistently and ensure that our team understands the protection that these design requirements provide. 
Another is to define and use cryptography standards. As we've seen with the rise of mobile cloud computing, we really need to make sure that things are secured, both data at rest as well as data being transmitted. And the unintentional disclosure, or depending upon the attacker you're up against, perhaps even alteration, could be significant. A bad choice of crypto could have some severe implications downstream. One of the things we find out is certain algorithms are deprecated. Uh, there's been a push to get everybody off of SSL for a number of years right now, getting us into TLS. But even TLS 1.0 and 1.1 are not considered to be uh, current. You should be at least 1.2 if you're going to go ahead and using uh, transport layer security. And now 1.3 has kind of moved out of experimental into operational. One thing to be careful, though, is that if you're going to go ahead and lean forward and do a 1.3, a lot of the core implementation, I haven't checked the latest Windows 10 update, but uh, 1.3 was not turned on by default. Uh, so you could be out of sync with your customers just as badly if you're ahead of the game with regard to the crypto versions as you are behind the game. In any case, what we really want to make sure is when it comes to crypto, don't roll your own. It's like packing your own parachute. Use vetted encryption libraries, those that are implemented in a way that allow them to be modular. So if it turns out that we either need to upgrade or modify something, perhaps either there's a vulnerability determined in one particular set of code or less likely, but always possible, somebody might say, hey, we found a way to pop that particular algorithm. We don't want to embed it so much in our code that it becomes an inoperable brain tumor to try to change our cryptography. Let's manage the security risk of using third-party components. I mean, let's face it. Uh, most of us use third-party components today when we're building things. It's really tough to write everything from scratch. Now, these libraries, whether they come from Microsoft or they come from a paid third-party or sometimes a lot of free stuff you can download, that represents, to a certain extent, some supply chain risk. Have we thought about being able to have an accurate inventory of these components? One of the things that we heard with regard to the 12th of May executive order with regard to the president's statement is what? Software bill of materials. And so from that perspective, we'll better able to manage our security risk of third-party components if we can go ahead and create that equivalent of a software bill of materials or present it by one for those components that we're using so we know what's in there. Next practice is to use approved tools. Define what your approved tool list is and publish that list. And then include things such as security checks, uh, links for compilers, and even warnings. Make sure that the latest version of tools that are approved are in use, particularly things like compiler versions. Take advantage of the fact that we have uh, a lot of people out there trying to make sure that we're using tools correctly, or at least the, uh, the new ones are available. Let's not become a victim of putting out new cold code with old tools. The next practice is to perform static analysis security testing, or SAST. We talked about that briefly. And we integrate that into the commit pipeline so that we're able to identify vulnerabilities each time the software is built or packaged. Now, sometimes some of these uh, development flaws could be spotted fairly early on and ways to identify a safer way to do so. There's plenty of tools that are out there. And of course, it has to match the environment in which you're doing your development. But the static analysis security testing allows us then to look at the fixed code Identify constructs, for example, is somebody who's writing the code collecting information and then redisplaying it back to the user without checking it? 
well, there's some potential for problem right there. Another way we can take a look at is to ensure that the syntax doesn't allow for known bad constructs. The next practice that Microsoft recommends is Dynamic Analysis Security Testing, or DAST. This is typically done at runtime verification. We take our software, it's compiled, and then we got to go ahead and integrate it and see how it works. See, the thing is you can look at static code and say, how does it look? But the DAST actually says, fire it up and turn it on and see what's working. And there's different things that we can do. We could go ahead, as we suggested before, do some fuzzing, which means sending large amounts of different types of data, trying to see if we can trip up the application, saying that, you know what? The developer never thought about that one. Now, fuzzing allows the more rapid identification of vulnerabilities because essentially we could create thousands or millions of different combinations of inputs in very short periods of time, something that would never do by hand. And from time to time, when you read about these really obscure vulnerabilities that get detected and announced, you're like, how in the world did somebody figure that one out? Well, probably using a fuzzer. Uh, because there just isn't enough time to go ahead and try every last one of these things manually. As we move along, then, we find out that performing pen testing is a great practice. But pen testing, if we think about where it fits in the critical controls, it's the last item in the list. And those are prioritized, suggesting that the goal of a pen test is to uncover vulnerabilities after we've done all our other checks. Look for coding errors, config errors, uh, deployment weaknesses, uh, pretty much looking for ways that we could put a smart individual with some good tool sets and go after the final environment as it's deployed. So as a pen test, really what you're looking for is a final exam, if you will, a final check mark on how is security doing. Sometimes people like to start with pen tests and the danger with that is that you're going to find a lot of problems and you're going to waste a lot of time probably doing special efforts to fix stuff that probably would have been covered already as a result of going through the normal processes we've outlined before. So resist the urge to jump the gun on that one and save that for where it's appropriate. And then establish a standard incident response process. Having a product security incident response team or a PCERT would be able to go ahead and in the event of some issue with regard to the code, there'd be a rapid approach that allows us to go ahead and see what can we do to go ahead and get a fix out. And then test that from time to time to make sure that we have ways of validating that it works out well. So we've looked at a couple of industry references out there, both from White Hat and from Microsoft. And there's plenty more if you find out that you're working in the AppSec world to be able to inject security safely into the process without really holding up what we're building. So as you go forward in your career and then you find yourself in organizations that are doing the application development, build those relationships, identify what those resources are, provide constructive tools that are going to be able to work toward helping out the organization. Don't just throw unfiltered data over the cubicle wall at the dev team saying, hey, we ran a little scan and there's uh, 400 possible problems with your code. Well, they're going to look at that and go like, no, 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 these guys are wasting our time. Rather, take the time to eliminate those false positives. And that way, when you're providing them with something, hey, it's security, they got the list, oh, come on. Well, let's look at the first one. Okay, oh, wait, yeah. Oh, yeah, we missed that, thanks. Check the next one. Ooh, oh, that's a good one. Hey, this is good stuff, thank you. You can see the difference between not doing your 
due diligence and, if you will, kind of stripping everything down and then doing so. So what you're really then ideally presenting is a vetted set of outputs where organizations on the dev side are going to do better. Now, what we find then is that if we're able to go ahead and do some testing, we can, for example, web applications test against the OWASP top 10. The Open Web Application Security Project has been around for a number of years and about every so often, you know, it's interesting, they came out with 2010, 2013, 2017. We're still waiting for an update. I remember talking to the guy, I said, how come we don't update these every year? And he said, things don't change. And so injection is still the number one vulnerability out there and followed by broken authentication and sensitive data exposure and the like. And as a result, what happens is, is that programmers miss things and they uh, end up producing these vulnerabilities. Now you ask, well, why do these things remain there year after year? And pretty much for the same reason that we have drivers that join, well, the highway every year. You get a 16-year-old, well, it's going to make some mistakes that when you're 26 or 36 or 46, then you're not going to make them anymore. But each year we're adding new 16-year-olds and they're going to make the same errors. Same thing with web developers. Web developers get better over time. They stop making mistakes once they understand that they're mistakes and they build better code. But while they're moving on and doing better stuff, we're adding new people who then introduce the similar types of vulnerabilities. So what we find then is that if you're going to be looking for some perhaps low-hanging fruit to identify to management that, hey, we need a better AppSec program out here, we need to go ahead and inject ourselves from a security perspective into this product sequence that we're putting out, if there's any resistance to that, you can use this as a kind of a shopping list to be able to identify where the potential problems are. And then as a result, if you can demonstrate the presence of a SQL injection vulnerability or cross-site scripting or um, cross-server-side request forgery, there's a lot of things that could go wrong that's out there. But essentially by being able to then work with the dev, dev team at the development side, as we talk about SAST, testing at DAST and the pen testing, and then ultimately even in production, the web app firewall is going to be able to allow us, to, if we're running it in sort of an active mode, to be able to prevent malicious things from actually reaching our web app. To a certain extent, a web app firewall can serve as a compensating control for not having world-class programmers. Okay, sorry, but let's face it, that a WAF, if it can go ahead and intercept attempts to do, for example, a, a SQL injection or something like that, and the programmer didn't think about it, well, the net result is that you've still been able to block that particular attack. It ideally should be blocked in the code, but that's not always possible. And then when we're trying to go ahead and uh, look at the basic philosophy of things, we find out that it's it's changed over time. For those of us who remember the days in Microsoft where you'd never use a version 1.0 of anything because it seemed like the whole world was going to be the test bed, and then you kind of waited for version 1.1 or 2.0 if you're really risk averse. But way back about 20 years ago, um, Bill Gates sent out a memo to all the full-time employees at Microsoft that was kind of called their trustworthy computing memo. And uh, you can still find that. Uh, there's an article up there on Wired that talks about it. But what was interesting is that his particular statement was that when you face a choice between new features and security, always choose security. Emphasize security right out of the box. And by being able to do so, they're then going to be able to 
uh, have less problems. Well, Microsoft's come a long way. Sure, we do find problems and we do find issues that are out there, but a whole lot less, relatively speaking, when you consider the size and complexity of what the code base looks like for, let's say, a Windows 10 and a Microsoft 365, as compared to this email that came out from Bill Gates on Tuesday, January 15, 2002, on trustworthy computing. Uh, back then, we were running, what, Windows XP and probably Service Pack 1. Maybe, yeah. So it's been a while, and we've come a long way. Okay. Hopefully, we've given you some things to think about, given you a couple of references from which you could go to. And as you go forward in your ability to help the organization with regard to the application development process and injecting security into it, you're more likely then to become a business partner with regard to that core product that's being generated by the organization. By viewing security as a security partner that saves problems downstream, we're reducing the risk of shipping bad code, reducing the risk of the financial fallout of that, the reputational risk that comes from shipping bad things. In general, we end up in a whole lot better stead. And I think we earn a better reputation for security as a whole, as long as we're focusing on coming across as the people who are, yeah, we're here to help. That's not like I'm from the government, I'm here to help, but no, we're security and we're actually going to work well with you. So those are some ideas for this week. Hopefully you find some inspiration in there. As always, if you'd like, please follow us on either LinkedIn or come to our website and make sure that you can go ahead and get the latest episode of CISO Tradecraft. Until next time, this is G. Mark Hardy urging you to stay safe and good luck with your career.